Amen. Oh, it is good to see you this morning. Thank you for being with us on this Independence Day. I know there are so many places you could be um, on this beautiful day, but thank you for being here online with us and here in worship. I'd invite you this morning to take your Bible with me and turn to a couple of texts, one from the Old Testament, one at the end of the New. I'd love for you to turn with me this morning to Jeremiah 29. In just a moment, we'll read verse 4 and then go to Revelation chapter 18. We'll read a few verses and then go to chapter 19. As you turn there this morning, I want to invite ushers. I I didn't give you a warning, but uh, this morning, the word will lead us to the table. And so if you did not receive the elements as you came in this morning, um, as we read the text, if you would just raise your hand, I want to make sure that you have that um, so we can be ready uh, together at the end of the service. But let's begin this morning with Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, verses 4 through 7. The Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims to all the exiles I have carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, cultivate gardens and eat what they produce, Get married and have children, then help your sons find wives and your daughters find husbands in order that they too may have children. Increase in number there so that you don't dwindle away. Promote the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because your future depends on its welfare. Now turn with me to Revelation beginning with chapter 18, the first four verses. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was filled with light because of his glory. He called out with a loud voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a lair for every unclean bird. She is a lair for every unclean bird and a lair for every unclean and disgusting beast because all the nations have fallen due to the wine of her lustful passion. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her and all, and the merchants of the earth became rich from the power of her loose and extravagant ways. And then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins and don't receive any of her plagues. And now chapter 19, the first eight verses. And after this, I heard what sounded like a huge crowd in heaven. They said, hallelujah. The salvation and glory and power of our God, his judgments are true and just because he judged the great prostitute who ruined the earth by her whoring and he exacted the penalty for the blood of his servants from her hand. Then they said a second time, hallelujah, smoke goes up from her forever and always. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne. And they said, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice went out from the throne and said, praise our God, all you, his servants, and you who fear him, both small and great. And I heard something that sounded like a huge crowd like rushing water and powerful thunder. They said, hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty exercised his royal power. Let us rejoice and celebrate and give him the glory for the wedding day of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was given fine, pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen is the saint's acts of justice. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, again, it is so good to see you this morning. Happy 
Independence Day. Happy Fourth of July. I am super nervous about preaching this morning. In fact, between you and me, this is the third shirt I've had on this morning already. And it's not because our air conditioner went out. Um, and it's strange because uh, most of my family's not here, as, as Pastor Diane said, Debbie and Sophie are in Oklahoma. Um, Caleb and Mel are in California. Um, just, I'm deserted today. Uh, but part of it is, I have been thinking about this Sunday, and this is not an exaggeration, I've been thinking about this Sunday for about 11 years. Now, I'm almost on my third, 300th sermon with you as your pastor, but it's been 11 years since the 4th of July fell on a Sunday. And after today, I get six more years to worry about it. The reason why this day kind of makes me nervous is because this is one of those days where as a pastor, you know that you will meet some people's expectations and not others. And it is one of the days that I find kind of tricky to know how to preach well on. And so this morning, I, I've been thinking a lot about it and have been kind of approaching it with trepidation. And as we think about it this morning, I want to think with you about the way in which the Scripture has ways of developing certain ideas about how we are to live in the world. This is important. Let me have you put your thinking cap on for just a little bit. There are various areas where you can trace the way the Scripture begins to think differently as we come to understand God more deeply, and especially as God is revealed to us in Christ Jesus, there are ways that we begin to think about things that are slightly different than the way that we have thought about them at the beginning of Scripture. Let me give you my favorite example. When the Scripture opens, the way people tend to live in family life is they practice polygamy. Um, one man, many wives. I remember hearing an academic paper years ago that really shaped my perspective of this, that argued that it's interesting the ways in which the way people formed families was a reflection of the way they thought about the divine. That when the scripture opens, the people are polytheists. There are many gods in the world, and what's interesting is the men have many wives. The people of God move to what's called heno or henotheism, which is this idea, that there are still many gods in the world, but there's one God who is over all the other gods. If we had time this morning, we could go through some passages in the Old Testament that kind of celebrate this. Who in all the skies above and among all the mighty ones, the psalmist says, who is like you? There's no one like you, Yahweh. Even when Moses goes to deliver the people out of Egypt, there is this sense that there are all sorts of gods. When, when he's standing before the, before the burning bush, he asks God, his name, tell me your name, because they're going to ask me, which God sent you? Moses isn't arguing there aren't many gods in the world, but what he's discovering is this God, Yahweh, this God is above all the other gods. And it's interesting that in some sense, the people begin to reflect that then in their family life. Um, I'm going to make up a word here, but they begin to uh, practice henogamy, um, where Jacob may have many wives, but Rachel is the wife over all the other wives. You, are, are you with me? But what's fascinating is by the time they get to the New Testament, they've come to understand that there aren't other gods, there's only one God. And all the other gods are false gods. And by the time they get there, they have moved in their relationship to monogamy. Um, they've discovered mo wives, mo problems. But they've also discovered there's only one God, and therefore we should live out our lives in that covenantal faithfulness that we see in God. Now, if we had more time, we could say, not only do they discover that, 
but even radically in the New Testament, they begin to understand even singleness as an option for following Christ into the kingdom. Did you get that? So there's a kind of progression in our understanding. I want to talk about the progression as the people of God understand what it means to live among the nations. So initially, Israel thinks of other nations primarily as enemies to the purposes of God. So first of all, Egypt um, is a problem. Pharaoh is oppressive. Nothing about Egypt in the way the scripture narrates it, at least. Nothing about it reflects much of the divine. When they get into, out of the wilderness, into the land, they live with all these ites. Hittites, Perizzites, Amalekites, Amorites, Philistines. Um, there's all these folks in the land. And for the most part, they think of them all as kind of pagan nations from which nothing can come that is good. And they're incredibly violent. And even the way they understand how they live in the land is not to live kind of in fellowship to their neighbor, but for the most part, they live in this way. This land ain't big enough for the both of us. And so if they go to war, they not only have to conquer them, but they have to participate in what are called the harem laws, where they have to eliminate everything. If you remember, Saul, for example, is in trouble because he spared the Amalekite king. And the rules were, you can't spare anything, and you can't take everything, anything. Everything has to be burned. Everything has to be leveled. Everyone has to be killed. Are you with me? So Israel is a holy nation living in the midst of all these other nations. But then they begin to shift. Now they have security. They build the city of David. Jerusalem becomes this place with walls and security. They're no longer the kind of little nation living in threat of all these other tribes and clans and nations in the land. And the prophets begin to imagine a different way of enacting the nations. Maybe we don't have to eliminate all the nations. Maybe what we can do is this. Maybe we can embody the way of God and God will lift up Israel, and we will become a light to the nations. And the nations will be drawn to the way of God because they see that way of God in us. Are you with me? But then a big thing happens. They wind up back in exile. I've mentioned it a time or two over the last six years. They wind up back in exile in Babylon. And here, the imagination shifts again from <laughs> all the nations are evil, we need to undo them, to, well, maybe we can witness to them, to what do you do when they absorb you into their life? And the strange thing about Babylon is they don't enslave us, but they let us dwell kind of in peace, worship Yahweh, what do we do when we live in a nation? If you have your Bible still open to Jeremiah 29, I would argue that Jeremiah's prophetic imagination is taking the people of God into a new level of imagination that basically says this. In exile, they exist within another nation and began to imagine that God might have a divine purpose for the nations that God's people could participate in, encourage, and even pray for. So it's not even just that they dwell in this nation. It's this idea they begin to imagine even God has a role for nations to play. And that in some ways, in the same way that Jonah gets swallowed up into the fish by God's direction, and the fish becomes this place of protection where Jonah doesn't drown until he gets barfed back up. 
Babylon is like this place that God has called up, that has been divinely ordered by God to, in a sense, swallow up Judah and become a place of harbor and protection, a place of care. And so Jeremiah begins to say to the people, so here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to sit around and plot the destruction of Babylon. I don't want you to think about how to undermine its authority. I don't want you to necessarily even pray that God would just smite Nebuchadnezzar. What I want you to do is this. I want you to have kids, buy property, participate in the life of Babylon, work for its good, pray for it, participate in its life. Are you with me? That they should become leaders in the nations. They should pray for the well-being and security of Babylon because the nations, they begin to imagine, the nations are not just opposed to God, but sometimes the nations can become a means through which God enacts God's purposes in the world. And this is important if you're still with me. That move opens the door for God's people to begin to have affection for and devotion to a particular place or nation where they dwell. This is important today. This makes space for, not, for us to not only have concern, but care, love. It creates space for us to have forms of even what we might call patriotism for a particular place where we have been located. I hope you feel that today. I'm excited when this is over to put my fourth shirt of the day on, which is going to be a t-shirt this time. And I'm going to put on what my grandfather called shorty pants. And I'm going to put my flip-flops on. I called them thongs once in a sermon. That didn't go well. They're flip-flops. They <laughs> will not be wearing a thong today. Thongs today. I'm going to eat hot dogs, and I'm going to, I'm going to drug my dog and live through fireworks tonight, right? <laughs> I'm going to do what you should do today. I'm going to watch baseball, and I'm be thankful for the freedoms that God has given us today in this particular place, as Pastor Diane prayed. I'm going to have affection for this place that you and I, most of us, call home just a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for this place we call home. Deep affection for it. What a beautiful land we live in. One of the privileges slash curses of being raised in a pastor's family is you've lived a lot of places. I can genuinely say I have affection, deep affection for everywhere we have lived in this country. Um, I feel like Oklahoma and Texas could use a few more mountains and a few fewer tornadoes, but man, they are good people. And when the blue bonnets come out, it's beautiful. There's not a more beautiful city in the world on a sunny day than Seattle, Washington. I love that city. I love California. You hear me? <laughs> Had enough. Keep it to yourself. It's a great place, great people, and a lot of things I miss. I'm starting to get defensive of people who make fun of Idaho. 
Yeah, amen. <laughs> the other day we were cleaning out the, um, the attic and Debbie found a box um, full of the medals and honors that her uncle Brian received in the military. Some of you know her uncle's story. He served in Vietnam, was a helicopter pilot, was shot down and is still missing. A few years ago, um, one of the soldiers who's buried at the tomb of the unknown soldier from that era, they had narrowed down the possibility that it may have been Debbie's uncle or somebody else and it turned out to be the other person. But she had the medals and awards all laid out the other day, including the Silver Star and several other just prominent awards. And we got to talking about how she was, you know, kind of really weeping over it and saying, man, we need to get a shadow box and put this up on the wall and not have this in the attic, but celebrate the, the courage and valor and the significant cost to her family that Brian gave. I, I want you to hear me say this. Jeremiah makes space for us to have those feelings about place. And even a command to serve well and to love and to pray for and to encourage and bless and seek the welfare of the place where God has placed us. Are you with me? However, this new imagination that Jeremiah sort of brings into God's people also brings up a new problem. And it is the problem of identity. And in many ways, this problem of identity is dealt with almost entirely in the book of Daniel. I don't really have time to preach the whole book this morning, but I'm going to try to. But the book of Daniel basically has six stories in it. Let me go through them quickly. In the book of Daniel, by the way, which many scholars argue was written in the second century before Jesus, in a time when post-Alexander the Great, a whole new culture of Greek you know, Hellenism, Greek-speaking languages and empires are moving into the, to the land and trying to impose new ways of thinking and speaking and imagining on God's people. And so as they are wrestling with this new identity that's being imposed on them, they grab stories from four centuries before in the sixth century when they were living in this exile that Jeremiah is addressing in Babylon. And they tell these particular stories. There's mainly four characters. Their Hebrew names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. For some reason, we remember Daniel's Hebrew name. By the way, all of those names are some form of worship to El, God, or some form of Yahweh. They are Hebrew holy names. But as soon as they are brought into leadership in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar wants to give them new names. He wants to name Daniel, Belteshazzar, and then we get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are all forms of Babylonian God names. And so we find the struggle. The struggle is as they live in and serve Babylon, there is this attempt to even rename them to squeeze them into a new form of imagination. And then Daniel and the guys are invited to eat at the king's table. And they are worried about this. And by the way, it's not, I would argue, it could be wrong, I'm not, but could, this text is not really about vegetarianism as a superior way to live. Because I'm having a hamburger later. Um, <laughs> That may be good for you, but the point of the Daniel story is if they eat at the king's table for too long, 
Daniel and his friends will begin to believe that God is not the one who supplies their needs, but Nebuchadnezzar is the one who supplies their needs. And what Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar gives a lot better than manna, even barbecued manna. And I want to be fast and quick here, but there are practices of allegiance. Nebuchadnezzar is fine with them worshiping Yahweh as long as they're not crazy about it. So every morning, if we will just give our allegiance to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, he'll know that at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, we love Yahweh, but we now really are Babylonian. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognize that's really problematic for us. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace where they're delivered. Belteshazzar follows Nebuchadnezzar, grabs the sacred vessels and drinks from them, taking sacred stuff and instilling secular meaning into them. It's that great text where the writing comes on the wall that he's in big trouble for having done this. I would love to spend a lot of time here thinking about what it means to take secular things and impose sacred meaning on them. Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel recognizes, man, what part of what keeps my uniqueness alive in the midst of Babylon is I pray regularly every day. I participate in practices that keep me attuned to God and to God's ways, even in this world where I've been pulled into leadership. And the story is about he'd rather go and risk death to the lions than give up the uniqueness of those practices. And then finally, the last part of Daniel is about how Babylon tells a myth. It tells the myth that it's the greatest empire. No empire will ever be greater than it, and it is eternal. To which the king has a dream, and Daniel interprets, no. Babylon's great, amazing empire in the history of civilizations. But it is temporary. It is not eternal. It will fall. And the Son of Man stands over all empires. Are you with me? And so the whole book of Daniel is, yes, we are invited to participate in these ways. But the practices matter. Can I tell a stupid story for a minute? Sorry, Mom. Um, When I was a kid, I had a job. And as a teenager, I bought my first rock album. It was by this group called Styx. And I bought this thing kids called a record. It was really cool. You put it on a turntable. Now you know what those are. But the album had a poster of the band inside of it. And so I thought it was really cool. So I, I put the poster on, my, on the back of my bedroom door thinking it would kind of be hidden there. I came home from school that day and the poster was folded up and on my bed with a sticky note on it from my mother that said, you may listen to it, but you may not worship it. <laughs> I had found the line. (laughs) The book of Daniel is a big post-it note to the people of God. Practices matter. You may live in it, dwell in it, even lead it, but you may not worship it. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus comes proclaiming the arrival of a kingdom of God. Now, this language of kingdom, the disciples naturally interpret it nationalistically and ask questions like this. Oh, great. Is now the time you're going to restore the nation of Israel? 
but you and I know. Because after Pentecost, this kingdom is redefined as a unique people, to quote Revelation 7, from every tribe, people, and language. So in Revelation chapter 7, the coolest thing happens. Oftentimes in Revelation, the revelator hears something and then he sees something else. So early on, he hears the lion of Judah has conquered, but then he sees a lamb that is slain. In chapter 7, he hears 144,000 who've been redeemed, which is kind of a reference probably to Israel that all the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes have been rescued out of the nations. God is redeeming Israel. That's what he hears. But then he looks and he sees a tribe from every nation and language and culture and color under heaven redeemed. Now, if you're with me, they thought nations were evil. Not so much. They thought maybe they could be a witness to the nations. Didn't they begin to understand? No, we're called to live in the nations. And now, radically, this kingdom that Jesus proclaims is a people who have been baptized, whose identity has been found in the Lamb, who now dwell among and in every nation and every tribe and every language under heaven. Oh, that was really good. Thank you. So what God's people experienced in Babylon, in exile, is now the permanent state of things until Christ returns. You and I are citizens of the kingdom, but we dwell within and are a part of every nation, tribe, and language, and ethnicity. And so, again, if you're with me, the book of Revelation then in some ways functions like Daniel functions in the Old Testament. It's about Christian identity in exile, where I titled this sermon today, How Do You Live in Two Places at Once? If you have your Bible still open, Revelation 18 and 19, towards the end of Revelation, begins to imagine a time when a new Babylon falls. It's interesting, the language that Revelation uses is Babylon. Babylon, from Daniel's day, has already fallen. You don't have to be a great biblical scholar to probably assume that the revelator is writing about Rome, this new empire, this new nation that the people of God live under, and that the book of Revelation is about giving us a pair of glasses through which we can interpret Rome that does so many good things. And this is really important. Rome did so many good things. Built roads, um, sewer systems. Amen, that's really good. Oftentimes brought long stretches of peace, even for the people of God. Rome that you and I all study in school because of all the great things Rome did at some level the book of Revelation wants to remind us, ah, not everything about Rome is great. We need to look through a pair of glasses that reminds us that it also wants to lure us in. It wants to draw us into its life. It wants to, to use Revelation's language, it wants to mark us with the beast, but God wants to mark us with the lamb. And so Revelation 18 is this moment where the revelator imagines a day that could not be imagined in the first century, a day when Rome would fall, when Babylon would fall, and heavens would announce the fall of Babylon. 
And if you read Revelation 18, there's a whole bunch of crying in Revelation 18. Because the people weep and mourn and wail, especially people who are getting rich off Babylon, they cry. But then Revelation chapter 19 is about the saints who sing hallelujah. Because although they lived in Babylon, were part of Babylon, probably even had roles of leadership in Babylon, their primary identity was as reflections of the Lamb and the eternal kingdom of God. Now, why does this matter? So this week, I came across a survey. Eric is going to help me put it on the screen, I think. But I came across this survey. You may have seen it online also. A survey done last year in 2020 of American evangelical Christians. And it asked them several questions, but when it asked this question, how important is your national identity and your faith identity? 16% of white American evangelicals said, being American is more important than my faith. 72% said their national and faith identities were of equal importance. Only 12 to 13% of white evangelical Christians responded that their Christian identity was more important than their national one. Now, my friend who shared this is actually an Asian American Christian scholar. He was sharing it in part because Asian Americans who tend to be treated as though they don't really fit in because of the way they look, operate and see things a little bit differently. 38% said, no, my faith identity is primary. But it doesn't matter which of those you look at. In my opinion, any answer that's not 100% my faith identity is above my national identity is really problematic for the church. I'll die on that one. And what that survey seems to highlight is what I'll quickly call a story problem and a practice problem. God's people, no matter what nation they live in, we are first and foremost eternal kingdom people living in a temporal Babylon. That is our story. Now, we come by this problem honestly. Uh, The Puritans made their way across the sea kind of narrated themselves on a kind of Israelite trip through the Red Sea, across the Atlantic Ocean, to a whole new promised land in which Canaanites lived. And there are things that cause us in our kind of story and imagination to easily confuse what it means for the church and God's people to be a light to the nations and to confuse that with living in a particular nation that we think is a light to the nations. And please don't misunderstand me. There's so much about this nation that we live in that operates the way I think God wants nations to operate. And we should celebrate that. The fact that we're given freedom to worship today, that is the way God intends nations to operate. And as Pastor Diane prayed, we should hope and work and pray that all nations would operate that way. But when we confuse our story, it becomes very hard for us to also confess our sins The Bible is often better at telling us the flaws of its leaders, read David, than we are at telling the flaws of our past heroes. It doesn't, by the way, 
make them necessarily bad or evil. It makes them human. And allows us to tell the truth about who we are, both good and bad, things that honor God, but also things that need to be confessed that don't honor God. If you have Revelation 18 still open, I think this is an important practice. When you read Revelation 18, we should put the name of whatever nation we live in in there. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was filled with light because of his glory. He called out with a loud voice, Fallen, fallen is America the great. Sometimes read Revelation 18 and the message and put America in there. It's awesome. The language of how nations have become drunk from the wealth of a particular nation. It's really convicting. Now, let me say, I don't think that's just true about us. If I were preaching this on Canada Day, I'd be saying, hey, Canada the Great, it's fallen, okay? Sorry, but it's fallen. I was in Germany today, I'd say, Auf Wiedersehen, right? Au revoir, France. Our inability to do that points out our idolatry. The people who are living in exile pay very close attention, not just to the stories they tell, but to the practices they participate in. And we embrace worship as an important form of counterformation. Practices matter. And that's why um, I promise I'll work hard to not make days like Advent, Christmas, which by the way, not this year, but in 2022, Christmas falls on a Sunday. Do not email me and ask if we're not having church on Christmas. <laughs> I'm making t-shirts that say, put the mask back in Christmas. <laughs> this is not a family holiday. <laughs> this is a Christian one. So we will do Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Pentecost and Trinity and even all Saints Sundays. We'll do that really well. Because we're gathered here today as a unique people that encompass every tribe and nation and language who are being shaped by those stories and by those practices. And we'll do okay at Hallmark holidays, including Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. But every time we gather around the Lord's table, it's called Eucharist, we do Thanksgiving a lot. And we'll be happy for love at Valentine's Day. And we'll love our mothers and our fathers. And on days like today, national holidays, we'll celebrate justice and freedom and sacrifice and work and the good things that God intends for nations that operate the way God wants them to operate but we'll always do them acknowledging we are living in two places at the same time. And so I'll always be a strong advocate for the stained glass windows over in the sanctuary, for the cross, for the symbols that are unique to this particular story and practice. Am I not offended by other symbols? But if I could tell one last quick story, when I was in Pasadena, we had lots of people whose citizenship were literally in other nations, but were living in Southern California. And I had a person come to me after a service one Sunday, sort of tongue in cheek, but meaning it, asking me if, because we had our national flag in the sanctuary, wanting to make sure we're welcome to attend here, right? 
The problem is, if that survey is close to accurate, you do not need another form of practice teaching you to love our nation. But do love it. But you need practices reminding you that you belong to the Lamb. And my sacred calling as your pastor is to make sure when Revelation 18 and 19 come, that as many great things as the particular Babylon in which we live has done, when its days are no more, that you do not dwell with those who weep and mourn and wail because everything they cared about is gone. My sacred duty is to make sure we stand together with the saints in Revelation 19 and sing hallelujah. I love that place, but it was temporary. May those tribes come from every nation and tribe and language and glorify the Lamb who marks our life and is the source from which all things in our life radiate. When Daniel lived in exile, he was worried about tables. If he ate at the table too long, he might become the wrong person. And so how appropriate that we close today around the table. It doesn't make hot dogs bad, by the way. They're pretty good with mustard and relish. For we're called to love this place, pray for this place, work for the good of this place. But we come to this table today and we've come to this place today to confess we are children of the Lamb. And this is the table that defines us. Would you prepare the elements? Let me pray a prayer of blessing. God, we come to this place today invited by the king to be children at the table. God, again, today we are so thankful for the unique opportunity you've given to us, to many of us in this room today to be part of this place. We love this country. We love much of its history. For there are powerful moments where this place, blessed by you, led by you, has operated in ways that you want the nations in their temporality to operate. I thank you for those who have risked themselves to protect freedoms, to deliver the oppressed, to be the instrument of good in a very broken world. But we also come this morning and confess not all of that history is pleasing to you and the way you would want nations to operate. And so we come today 
in honesty and vulnerability and pray for the United States of America. Help our leaders. Help some in this room to be called to be leaders in this place. Help this community of Nampa, help the state of Idaho, help this Northwest area. Help us to, to operate the way you want authority to operate. May we be a blessing even to those who do not believe as we do. So we pray for its welfare. We work for its welfare. So much of our welfare is tied up and our loves are tied up in this place. But we have come with these elements in hand to confess that our first and primary identity was formed in waters of baptism. And so make us reflections of the Lamb. And may the new creation be our home. And may the nations receive our love because you have made us a people that transcend every boundary and language and race. Make that the grace that forms us today. And so truly, Christ, make us what we eat today. Make us your body. Make us your body. Make us your body in the world. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us take, let us eat in remembrance of who we are becoming in him. After supper was over, he took the cup, he blessed it, he redefined it as his blood, poured out for us to preserve us blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take and drink this morning so that his life may flow through us. May it be so. May we be the body of Christ. And God's people said, amen.